0: This is episode number 443 with Jeff Wald, author of The End of Jobs. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is John Crone, a chief data scientist and best-selling author on deep learning. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. John Crone, and I am ever so delighted to be joined today by the brilliant and articulate Jeff Wald. Jeff is a serial tech entrepreneur with multiple successful exits, but... He's here with us today to discuss his new book on how data science, automation, and other macroeconomic factors will reshape jobs and work around the globe in the coming decades. Thanks to Jeff, this episode is packed to the brim with hard data, empirical evidence, and optimistic, soundly reasoned arguments around how human capital is likely to evolve in the future. This episode is for anyone who'd like to be able to better predict how data and automation will continue to reshape their career and the broader world. So presumably it's an episode for pretty well everyone. I learned an absurd amount in this episode and I had a lot of my presumptions about the future of work turned upside down. Join us and perhaps many of your presumptions will be turned upside down too. All right, Jeff. Welcome to the show. Where in the world are you calling from? I had the impression that you were in New York with me, but before the show, as we were talking about, well, I was hoping to talk to you about what gym you're going to in New York, I found out that that was going to be a question that wasn't going to go very far. Tell us about where you are right now.
1: Well, I will tell you that uh, I decamped from New York City, temporarily very very temporarily i will 100 percent be back despite people saying stay down there for at least six months and establish residency not <laughs> to pay taxes no i'm a new yorker and i will be a new yorker and i will pay taxes in new york but uh my parents do have a home down uh in south florida and given covid they are not doing their normal snowbird thing and while I was going for a run the other day in Frigid Central Park. It occurred to me, wait a minute, there's a house down there that has nobody in it. <laughs> Why aren't I in it? So the next day I packed up some stuff and, uh, and headed south. So I've been, uh, been here for 10 days and uh, I did, you know, I, this is in a, an elderly community. You know, the average age here in this uh, country club is about 75. And so they've got very strict COVID rules, which I respect. Hmm. And so I wasn't allowed out of the house until uh, five days in a PCR test. But uh, as we talked about earlier, I did go to the gym here uh, at the club for the first time with masks on and only 15 people allowed in the gym. It mm-hmm. was my first time in a gym in a year, and it was so exciting. I'm going to be so sore tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> nice.
0: Uh, and have you found nice uh, running trails, anything like Central Park around Boca Raton?
1: Oh, come on now. There's nothing like Central Park. <laughs> nothing like Central Park. But uh, this is a beautiful area, beautiful community. I'm, I'm very fortunate to be, uh, to be down here.
0: I agree. I do love Laps of Central Park myself. Um, So we're here to talk about your first book today. It's called The Birthday Rules, Critical Conversations to Have with Your Children 6 to 16. Oh, wait, I'm going to take a bad note here. Well, wait. Now we're here to talk about your latest book which is The End of Jobs, Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. I don't know if you want to tell us for a minute about that first uh, book. It's quite
1: a pivot between the two. It's a heck of a pivot. I mean, look, the first book was based on a lot of things that I do, which was just kind of somebody saying something and me thinking, oh, that's a good idea. My older brother and his wife are two of the best humans that I know. Uh, They were struggling, John, because their oldest had come and asked for a phone. Their oldest, Jonah, was seven. At the time and my older brother who who, again best person best parents best partner i mean he's just the the two of them are just amazing and they didn't know what to do and i thought wow if these two don't know what to do ain't nobody know what to do and he just made this statement he said you know there should just be a list of when kids get what and all parents have to follow it because i don't want to deal with this and i thought should be that list. So here's what I did, man. I hired a bunch of researchers and we took all the data, all the reports and all the studies about what different experts said about adolescent child and adolescent brain development. And uh, we added it all together and put together a framework, but it is a framework. It's not designed to be prescriptive. I mean, every child's developmental path is different. Every family's economic capabilities are different. Every family's value systems are different. So just because a child's prefrontal cortex is developed enough at the age of 11 on average to handle the responsibilities of a phone, doesn't mean you should get a phone. And, and Jonah <laughs> ended up getting a phone, I think, at 10. But, and now he's got one, and now he doesn't get off the phone because now he's 15. But be that as it may.
0: Nice. I love, actually, the neuroscience approach to writing that book. I wasn't expecting that. I, you may not have known that I have a PhD in neuroscience. And I so, did not know this. Yeah. And so you mentioning prefrontal cortices and them being sufficiently well developed that does pique my interest. Did you do uh, this? Is I'm I'm only going to ask one more question before we move on to the end of jobs. But did you do anything related to gender differences in brain development?
1: We did not. We did not dive that deep uh, because there are so many differences, even uh, uh, yeah. non-gender based, that the when you start breaking it down, there would be once I brought broke down that subdivision, there'd be a bunch of different subdivisions to break down, and so. It was just around 11. Uh, but girls certainly did develop much quicker than boys.
0: Yeah, definitely. There was um, one of my favorite neuroscientific um, uh, factoids that I like telling at parties is that um, boys develop a, uh, an amygdala. So your emotional center of your brain is fully adult by the age of 16, but your prefrontal mm-hmm. cortex on average, not until you're 18. And so there's this two-year gap where you have all the adult emotions, but you can't control them. And that's 16 to 18 for boys. For girls, it's 14 to 16. And I think when you think back to a lot of high school experiences, <laughs> um, it's, it's not easy to, re- it's not hard to remember experiences that fit well into that neuroscience narrative.
1: Very much looking forward to my nieces and nephews all going through that. <laughs> Great. All right.
0: So let's segue neatly into the end of jobs. So... I love this book. I was so excited to be able to have you on the podcast and ask you questions about this book. I absolutely love it. So we're going to go through some chronology here, which follows roughly the chapter arc of the book. So we're going to start off with a history of work, Mm -hmm. and then we're going to talk about some, um, some data behind where we are today and unusual things that are happening today, following history to today. And then we're going to predict the future and uh, talk about how the workplace is going to be in the future with an emphasis on uh, data, models, automation. So let's start off,
1: Jeff, by talking about a history of work. Well, I'll tell you this. Going back even a step before that, which is the kind of why I wrote this one, Mm. You know, I wrote it because I was getting very frustrated with people that would make predictions about the future of work that weren't based in evidence. And, you know, look, I founded this company, Work Market. We were raised all this venture capital and we were doing all these things. So I got to go to all these conferences and give talks and either on panels or listening to other speakers. You'd hear people, I'd hear people and it would get very frustrating because people would make predictions. And I'm like, what data are they using to come to that conclusion? That, That makes no sense. The data I have says that that's completely wrong and asinine. And yet here's a person, a thought leader, air quotes saying it so maybe they have different data and it turned out they didn't they just were yammering on and i i abhor that anybody speaking in the public square without evidence i abhor but people making predictions about the future of work is especially dangerous because people are making choices about their careers about their family about where they're going to be from a community standpoint about their companies and then obviously we have societal issues And you have a responsibility to use these bodies of evidence. These bodies of evidence are history, data, and how companies actually engage workers. And if you use those, you still probably are going to get it wrong, by the way. There's no crystal ball here, but you Mm -hmm. at least have a logical, reasonable, defensible model for making your prediction. You can at least back up what you're saying. So with that, the history of work, you know, John, to... Make predictions about the future of work without studying history makes zero sense to me. You know, the five most dangerous words in business, as often said, are this time it is different Mm. because history rhymes. And so we as a society have been through mass changes in technology before. And I bring that up because our big lens through which we're looking through the future of work is the huge technological change of robots and AI. And so, especially at this point in history, at this point in our development as a society, to not look at the other times when companies and workers had to come together and renegotiate their contract in the face of tremendous technological innovation, seeing how companies, workers, and society handled those change, changes and understanding where we're slightly different now, but at least studying them seems like a predicate. and the things that we can learn from the history of work are are voluminous. We could talk about it for hours, but it comes down to there's a supply and demand imbalance. There is always, I should say in a mass day way, there's always more workers than there are work to be done. That actually ends up not being true for discrete niches and very specific points in time, like blockchain analysis or data scientists now. They have a huge supply and demand imbalance the other way where there's not enough. Um, but traditionally, there is a huge supply and demand imbalance between companies and workers. Companies have power. Companies abuse that power. And workers have to rely on counterbalancing forces of unions, social safety net, and regulation to help get some stability in that relationship. And then the relationship continues stable for some period. And then, boom, a new technology disrupts it. And so... Studying and understanding that framework, I think, is very important for thinking about how we handle this next wave of technological innovation.
0: That makes a lot of sense to me. You're preaching to the choir here on having data and having some evidence behind what you're doing. Um, I love that. That's uh, you know that's the focus that we're going to have here. Uh, you even have a, this time it's different, or it's different this time, is uh, one of the chapter titles later in the book, and I'm guessing that that's saying that. It, well, maybe, maybe we shouldn't jump ahead uh, too far. But so, uh, so a major thing that has happened in relatively recent history that um, is maybe a good anecdote for mm-hmm. how things might change in the near future is the lifetime contract, um, which I suspect many listeners won't even be
1: aware of as a practice that was common until very recently. Well, here's the super interesting thing. They may not have seen it in terms of a colleague having gone through it, but they, they may have this notion of in the 50s and 60s, there was a very different work environment. And I highlighted this in the book because it's something that when I'm at a conference and in a debate format, so I'll, I love a good debate, they'll pit me against somebody who thinks companies are screwing workers left, right, and center, and the gig workforce is, is an abomination. And I'll say, you know, it didn't used to be this way. And I'll say, when? When did it not used to be this way? When did companies look after their workers? When did companies provide all of these benefits for their workers? Say, so, oh, in the 1950s and 1960s. And I will say, okay, well, let's start with data, because what does the data tell us? The average amount of time a person spends in a job today, John, is 4.2 years. Now that differs industry by industry, it differs age bracket by age bracket, but on average, 4.2 years. If we were to dial that back to the 1960s, when the Bureau of Labor Statistics started keeping track of this data, and this was the height of the lifetime employment model, John, I'm putting you on the spot here. What do you think the average amount of time a worker in the United States spent at a job in 1960? Well... (laughs)
0: If you weren't posing it to me in that way, I probably <laughs> would have guessed a much bigger number than I'm feeling like guessing now. Um, so, you know, if you had if we hadn't had this preamble, mm-hmm. I might have said, uh, you know, something like 20, 30 years. And that I would the, have probably, that is the average guess. Yeah. And I would have been thinking in my mind, actually, not about the 50s and 60s. I would have been thinking about maybe a little earlier with about a century ago with uh, Ford employees where I believe. Mm-hmm. They would have, uh, you know, people would come to your home and kind of make sure that you had a nice stable home before giving you an offer of employment. And I, and from all that, if you're putting all that work into hiring these people, I kind of just thought that if you managed to get a Ford job, that was a really cushy job, uh, you know, for a manual labor job, at least uh, at that time, and that you had lots of benefits, lifetime pension, your family mm-hmm. was taken care of all these things, and that you would have that job for life, like a tenured professor.
1: So it's yeah. interesting. Henry Ford, aside from being a terrible anti-Semite and a few other terrible things, was, you know, did a wonderful job by his workers in a number of ways. And one of the things that he's very famous of saying is, I want to pay my workers enough so they can buy a car. When people said, Oh my gosh, why are you paying them so much? I want them to afford the product. And that's a very fundamental part of why we see economic expansion is that workers are able to buy more. Here's the thing about the data and what the data tells us. The average amount of time a person spent in a job in the United States in 1960 was five years. And it's really never changed. It goes up a little bit. It goes down a little bit. You know, it was about 4.2 in the mid-1980s. And then it started trending back up to 4.4, 4.5, then back down And that's the reality of the U.S. workforce, which is not to say that the lifetime model model never existed. It existed. But did it exist for every worker at every company? Hard no. Absolutely not. Did it exist for some workers at some companies? Of course it did. But we take those stories about the job at GM, the job at General Electric, the job at Dow Chemical, and the defined benefit pension plan, and all these other things, and we manifest them throughout the economic experience and employment experience for every American. It just simply isn't the case. Right. So it becomes a very false narrative. As a notion, it certainly existed. Did it exist as the standard for the American worker? No, it didn't. And it becomes very important to understand that because when you're comparing the state of the American worker today, you should be comparing it to the actual state of the American worker at some point in time in which you want to have this discussion, not some fanciful notion of what that worker had. I love it.
0: Eliminating unnecessary distractions is one of the central principles of my lifestyle. As such, I only subscribe to a handful of email newsletters, those that provide a massive signal-to-noise ratio. One of the very few that meet my strict criterion is the Data Science Insider. If you weren't aware of it already, The Data Science Insider is a 100% free newsletter that the Super Data Science team creates and sends out every Friday. We pour over all of the news and identify the most important breakthroughs in the fields of data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. The top five, simply five news items. The top five items are hand-picked, the items that we're confident will be most relevant to your personal and professional growth. Each of the five articles is summarized into a standardized easy-to-read format and then packed gently into a single email. This means that you don't have to go and read the whole article, you can read our summary and be up to speed on the latest and greatest data innovations in no time at all. That said, if any items do particularly tickle your fancy, then you can click through and read the full article. This is what I do. I skim the Data Science Insider newsletter every week. Those items that are relevant to me, I read the summary in full. And if that signals to me that I should be digging into the full original piece, for example to pour over figures, equations, code, or experimental methodology, I click through and dig deep. So, if you'd like to get the best signal-to-noise ratio out there in data science, machine learning, and AI news, subscribe to the Data Science Insider, which is completely free, no strings attached, at superdatascience.com dsi. That's superdatascience.com/dsI, and now let's return to our amazing episode. So, in these debates, you would be coming with data, and the person you're debating against would have a few anecdotes in their mind, just like I did, and uh, that ends up being the basis for their arguments. Uh, and I, yeah, I think that that's a that's a it's a common flaw in human reasoning. Yeah, um, it's a like these rules of thumb that we have for, for quickly coming up with uh, an understanding of of any event, including past events.
1: You know, I will I will tell you the story, which I actually have forgotten and you just you just reminded me of this. I was on a debate stage. Uh, I forget who I was debating, but it was at The Economist, the Economist magazine's Future of Work conference. Mm-hmm. And it was gig economy, good or bad. And I was debating and the person came with anecdotes about how jobs used to be. And I was like, but that isn't true. And we went back and forth, and he just – he closed out by saying, you know, my son was diagnosed with cancer. And he threw the cancer thing in and how his son – because he had a job at a company, he had healthcare, and this and that. And I lost – the economist actually pulled the audience who thought it was good before and then who thought it was good after, and I ended up losing support to the argument. And I was like, oh. well, first off, my heart goes out to your son, and I hope he's okay, but what the f- – I mean, come on, man. Like <laughs> – that's not a debate that is that is pulling on heartstrings, which unfortunately is very effective, yeah. not data driven, but very effective.
0: Mm. That's uh, you sound like, you know, a lot about debating. Do you know what like the formal There's like in like when you're debating with somebody or there's these flaws in logic like um, you could have an ad hominem attack, which isn't what happened there but it's somehow, this is something, it's like a red herring or it's some, it's a logical fallacy that they're employing.
1: I am, I'm familiar with the words. I am not familiar with them enough as <laughs> tactics <laughs> and I would probably be all the better at a lot of things I did if I actually studied and, and did those things. I just go into debates. I'm like, all right, here's what I'm saying. Take it or leave it. Nice.
0: I mean, it sounds like it's working for you, although maybe not on that one. Occasion. Not on that
1: one. I like <laughs> got my butt kicked. Not for the first time and certainly won't be for the last.
0: Um, all right, great. So that's super helpful. I love that you're so data driven. Tell us a bit. Tell us what the data tells us about where we are now. Um, I often tell people things around um, not only just employment, but in terms of data, in terms of the things that make life really uh, pleasant, whether we're aware of it or not, uh, whether we're aware of it or not. So things like literacy, things like surviving. Um, childbirth, um, things like being able to vote uh, on a huge range of metrics of uh, violence whether, and death by violence, whether in the US or on a global scale, we are in by far the best time ever. Yep. And it's not even close. Yep. Um, and um, yeah, so I, I don't have a huge amount of uh, data on workforce stats. But maybe you can fill in the gaps.
1: Well, I will tell you this. One of the very clear trends from the future, from the history of work, is the human experience of working fewer hours, Mm -hmm. in the human experience of having ever more jobs in society, and the human experience of having a higher standard of living. Those things are very clear, almost uninterrupted patterns. There are certainly some interruptions in periods of great economic dislocation, the Great Depression. Global financial crisis now, but for the most part, if we trend line out, a unbelievably wonderful state. To your point of this, uh, I believe it was Peter Diamandis uh, of the X Prize that kind of had this term, the time of ultimate abundance, or that from a data standpoint, we have it has never been a better time. Yeah. Never, never, never. Radical abundance. And so, when we talk about the now. I'm going to break the now down into three different buckets, and I'm going to do that so I don't ramble on for 20 minutes about <laughs> these three, <laughs> we could break them down over if you'd like. One is remote work, and I would kind of talk about it pre-pandemic through pandemic. The other is on-demand, and the third is really what the title of the book was about. You know, The publisher loved the title, The End of Jobs, because it was provocative and this and that, but it is somewhat misleading in as much as... People think it's the end of jobs because of robots and AI. Mm. That is not at all what I mean. And my conclusion is there'll be no net job losses from robots and AI, but we'll get into that later. The end of jobs is the end of the one office, one manager, nine to five job. That job is ending. And the pandemic has sped up the end of that job. And from that, we see movements on on on-demand labor. We see movements on remote work. We see movements on team-based work. We see movements on task-based work. Those are a lot of the hallmarks. The one office, one manager, nine to five job dying has been dying for some time being driven by a host of factors from globalization to shareholder capitalism to technological change, all helping to break that bone of in order to be an employee at this company, you need to be at this office at your desk at the manufacturing line from nine to five. That is the job. And we have, been breaking that bone and moving it away. And so the most present ways and the ways people think about it the most is the on-demand labor market and the remote work construct, both of which help move this nine-to-five, one office, one manager job to the end state, which is a fluid, team-based, work-from-anywhere, always-on job. That's where we're moving. And so that movement has been happening for 20, 30 years. And that is a very big hallmark of the world of work now. One office, one manager, nine to five, to fluid, team-based, work from anywhere, always on.
0: Nice. I am understanding that. And I I am glad you're leading me um, into the correct interpretation of your book title. And that does make perfect sense from what I saw later on in the book. Uh, I just want to make sure I get those three buckets right. So you're saying remote work, on-demand, and the third one was
1: was this one one office, one manager nine to five moving manager. to fluid team based it we're always on. Got it, got it. And then we have so then so we kinda touched on the last one, and then we can dive in if you want on the on-demand labor market and remote work.
0: Yeah, let's talk about those for sure.
1: So on-demand labor. Look, I got to know the on-demand labor market because we built this company, Work Market. Raised about 70 million in venture capital from some of the largest VCs in the world. And We sold the company to ADP. It was a great outcome, gave me the space to finish this book, which I've been writing for five years. But what did WorkMarket do? WorkMarket was an enterprise software platform that enabled corporations to efficiently and compliantly organize, manage, and pay their freelance workforce. Sounds like you might have said
0: that more than once. I've said
1: that more than (laughs) once. I might have said that 10,000 times at this point. If you have a freelance workforce, you need software to run it. Because you have efficiency issues and you have compliance issues. We were the first and by far the largest piece of software to help companies manage their freelancers. And ADP believes in a world of total talent management, which we'll talk about a little bit later in this conversation. And in order to deliver total talent management to their clients, they needed software to help you manage all of your workers. Thus, they bought WorkMarket. So in getting to build the piece of software that helped most companies manage their freelancers, we got to know a thing or two about the freelance workforce. And here's the thing. When I started the company, John, in 2010, there was a statement that everybody was 100% sure was true, which was by 2020, 50% of the labor force is going to be on demand. At the time, the on-demand labor force was somewhere between 25 and 27% of the labor force. We don't know exactly how much because on-demand labor is very wishy-washy statistics and there are very few data sources we can go to we have to rely a lot on survey data which surveys are usually five to eight thousand people in the labor world and it's tough to extrapolate out to 164 million hundred yeah 164 million american workers with surveys of that size but it's the best we have
0: yeah especially because presumably some specific occupations there might be just a few responses in that survey Mm -hmm. and so it's unlikely to be representative of the thousands or tens of thousands of people that work in that space.
1: That's a great point. When doing a survey of 5,000 people, when you have 700 plus job classifications, how many are you getting within each classification and really understanding and you very quickly get to an end that does not rep- have, give you a representative uh, sample size. Mm-hmm. So 25 to 27% of the labor force and people felt that it was going to get to 50%. That was unbelievably never going to be true. I mean, there was no world in which that would have happened. Yet, that is what everybody said. And by the way, now that we've passed 2020, thank God, uh, you know what everyone's saying now? Oh, by 2030, 50% (laughs) of the labor force. You're like, whoa, it grew like 3% over to 2010, 2020. Now you think it's just going to accelerate? Like, why? What? Data are you using to draw the conclusion? Because it's never going to happen. The reality of the on-demand labor market is: it has been a very large part of the labor force for a very long time. This is not some new phenomenon. This dates back to the post-war period, with the Kelly Girl was uh, Kelly Services kind of created the temp market. Then freelancers go back well before then. Mm. Very large. Very important part of the labor force for a very long time. The idea that it was going to suddenly accelerate, no. On the consumer side, okay, maybe. You know, We're replacing the delivery boy or girl from the local restaurant with Instacart and DoorDash and, right. deli- and all these other things. It didn't really fundamentally change the labor force there. A lot of dog walking happens now through apps, Rover right. and Wag. And you know what? That created many, 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 many new 1099 data points. But how many 1099s were being given to dog walkers before then? Because every dog walker was paid in cash. About zero. So, all right, we've got a huge amount of new data points on 1099s. But did anything fundamentally change in the economy? We took a gray market transaction and moved it to the formal economy. Nothing changed. Yeah. Uber a, drivers replacing taxi drivers. That there's no fundamental change there. We're using Ubers more than we use taxis. But there aren't a lot of fundamental changes occurring in the labor market.
0: And 1099 uh, of oh, those outside of uh, the US are uh, formal tax forms to the IRS, uh, federal yes. government in the US. And so basically people going from being paid $20 cash for the dog walk to doing it through an app and then having to file taxes. We're seeing a lot more people Yeah. Filing taxes and we have the data. That's a really good point. Um, And even then, even with all of, you know, now people in the formal economy that previously might not have been, it's still, like you're saying, 3% of workers, it's a splash in the pan, a a drop in the pan would be the
1: expression. It Um, is. Look, these are movements. I am not saying they're not movements, but the movements that drive another 25% of the labor force. So in the United States, 40 million workers. No, that's not happening. That's not going to happen until corporations fundamentally change work streams and workflows, and they haven't, and they're not going to. So the idea that it's going to hit 50% of labor force is silly. So we spend a lot of time in the book talking about the world of work now in regards to on-demand workers to give that historic context to give the data and what the data has told us over the last 10 to 15 years and to break down where those different workers are and what the consumer interaction is versus corporate interactions. And it paints a picture of slow and steady growth, slow and steady growth that I think will continue, but slow and steady growth, not a doubling that that's not going to happen because we went from 25 to 27% of the labor force to about 28 to 30% of the labor force. That's kind of where we are now.
0: Yeah, over 10 years. Yep. Yeah. Nice. So that covers fluid work, on-demand work, and remote work is probably something that people are thinking a lot about right now. Um, Oh, remote
1: work. Yeah. Let me tell you, surprising nobody, I'm going to start with history. (laughs) Great. 10 years ago, 1.5% of the U.S. workforce worked remotely. Now, definitions are super important here as they Mm -hmm. should be to all of your listeners when we talk about data structuring. Mm -hmm. Remote work means more than 50% of the time you are working in a location that is not your office. Mm -hmm. So if I go to the office three days a week, but don't for two days, I am not a remote worker. I have a flexible work arrangement, totally different thing. Remote work, 1.5% of labor force, it did double over a 10-year period. So unlike on-demand work, which was predicted to double, no one predicted remote work doubling, but it did. And doubling happens in the labor market incredibly infrequently, and only when you're dealing with very small numbers. We went from one5 to 3% of the U.S. labor force worked remotely pre-pandemic. And the reason that the 3% was kind of considered to be not maxing out, but going to be a huge drop-off in growth If you had asked me pre-pandemic, I would have said, well, we're probably going to get to 4% over the next 10 years, because there are two fundamental impediments to the continued growth of the remote workforce. One is antiquated mindsets. We all know the manager that says, yeah, yeah, I know what all the studies say, that remote workers are happier, they're healthier, they're more productive, they have higher retention, they cost the company less, it costs the workers less. I get all that, but I think magic happens when when the workers are in the office i'm I
0: think, one of those people
1: i'm yeah i yeah yeah i Keep think going, productivity going. equals presence <laughs> and we all know that yeah like you know that is a point of view and i remember debating uh the president of a very 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 large company and i said okay well you think the people have to be in the office what data do you use to support that and he said well, i don't have data it's my gut <laughs> and i literally just dropped my pen i'm like i i can't argue with your gut um I have study after study that tells me remote workers are all these wonderful things, and you have no reason for keeping your workers tethered to their desks, but I can't argue against your gut because that's insane. And so, okay, that was reason number one, or impediment number one. Impediment number two were systems, policies, and procedures. It's one thing to say, okay, you guys can work remote, it's another to make sure that they can access all the company's systems from outside their far, the company's four walls. That's not an easy task. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to make sure that there are policies in place that people aren't being penalized for working remotely, that they're not being shut out of conversations, out of meetings, that there's a, a remote option for every single meeting that occurs, not, oh, John's remote, let's make sure we have one, but a default one that's always there, so right. that you don't have to take a poll as to who's there and who isn't. Those are the kinds of things that drive remote work and make it effective. And both were significant impediments and both had to change in March of 2020. Didn't Mm -hmm. have a choice. Mindset had to change. We had to put in place the policies, procedures, and systems. Had to. And at the height of the pandemic, 40% of the U.S. workforce worked remotely. Now, the natural limit in the United States is 42%. That is the highest percentage of the U.S. workforce that can work remote, because clearly some industries can't manufacturing, logistics, Mm -hmm. supply chains, retail, entertainment, many, many services can't be performed in the home. And so 42 percent, by the way, is the highest of any country in the world. Oh, wow. So at the height of the pandemic, 40 percent of the U.S. workforce was working remotely. It was really this Herculean task that occurred because. You know, in America, we are flexible and we find a way, find a way to get things done. And we did, as did other countries around the world. And so when we think about post-pandemic, we think about about 8% of the workforce will remain remote. Again, definitions are important. Remote meaning more than 50% of the time. So when there's more than 50% of the time, by the way, John, that means from a tax standpoint, you don't have nexus in the office, so you're not paying Tax in New York City as a commuter or whatever it is. And below 50% of the time showing up in the office means as the office manager, I probably don't have to allocate infrastructure to you or square footage to you. Okay. There are two very, very important things that that threshold helps determine. 8% will work remote. And we come to that conclusion based on a host of different survey data on what workers want and what managers want, knowing that, Workers are going to have a little bit more of a say than they had before. It used to be kind of a pull function where the worker was saying, I want to work remote pre-pandemic, and the manager was mostly saying no. Now the managers finally see the light, if you will. Managers will push it a little bit more and maybe have to find reasons to bring workers to the office. And when people say, oh, 8%, that's not enough. I say, well, let's remember two things. That's 8% out of the 42%. So it's nearly 20% of the people that can work remote will. That's kind of mind-blowing. And two, the definition of remote work. If you ask me who's going to have flexible work arrangements, now we see data that points to 32 to 33% of the workforce, almost 75% of everyone that could. So you're going to see a huge amount of people that every other Friday aren't in the office, every third week aren't in the office. And they'll be able to work remotely, which has tremendously positive benefits for companies and for workers.
0: As a mostly an anecdote, though, I do have some data to back me up Um, in our own company. We have about 200 people and we did a survey at a town hall, which is something these kinds of things that we didn't have before. But Mm -hmm. since March 2020, we've had um, regular town halls and we do polls in them. And in the most recent one, we asked when it's safe to return to work, um, would you know, what kind of work arrangement would you like to have? And our company, as far as I'm aware, everybody was working in an office all the time. Mm-hmm. It was unusual to be away. You'd have to have a reason. Um, like you're saying, managers, the default answer was no. And I, I, you know, I might be wrong. There's lots of international offices and maybe there's exceptions, but I think that that's generally how it worked <laughs> in our company. And so ask 200 people in the town hall, would you like to return to being in the office full time? Would you like to be working remote full time, or somewhere in the middle, like you're saying, you know, some majority uh, in the office or majority from home, mm-hmm. and zero people said being in the office all the time, right? Which is kind of crazy. You think that someone would at least like by accident hit the wrong button <laughs> <laughs> with an n of two hundred, um, and then in terms of so that you know, in terms of, but um, how many
1: uh, people wanted to be remote full time? <sighs>
0: I don't remember off the top of my head. It wasn't it wasn't a majority. Right. Uh you know, the majority want to be in the office some proportion of the time.
1: We are social animals. Look, data's data, but human beings are here human and we have needs and we're not driven entirely by data and logic. We want to be around other people. Yeah. I mean, I miss my colleagues I, tremendously. I'd love to be able to hang out. Do I want to be there all the time? No. It is the you know, it's that answer of who wants to be back full time that gets very few respondents. Yeah. But some of the time, yeah, some of the time.
0: Yeah, so I agree that that has changed. And then the other piece, at least from my personal experience with my team, we do scientific research and development, building models. Mm -hmm. And I thought that it would be impossible for us to do our work away from each other. And not only am I wrong, But we're more productive than ever. Now, I do think that there's specific, you know, in the same way that you talk about having, um, you know, data about an entire economy, uh, generalizations versus specific niche instances. Mm -hmm. Um, So you gave the example of like blockchain uh, analysts or data scientists being unusual relative to the rest of, you Mm you know, the rest of an economy. I think that there is a similar kind of thing here where there are things like socialization that the employees really like, but I also think that some aspects of productivity like us being able to sit down as a team with a whiteboard and no computers, just notepads, you know, there's some, there's, but that we're not doing that 40 hours a week. Of course not. <laughs> so, of course not. you know, to have a future where you set up um half a day or a day or two days a week where people are in all together and you're very specifically like, you know, we're gonna be doing brainstorming around how this model could be better during that specific time. And then we'll come out with actions, um, deliverables from that, which you'll go off and do for a day or two on your own. And I think Mm -hmm. that people people are, I know now, I've been proved wrong. People definitely are more productive on their own doing
1: those things. And look to your point around the subdivisions of the data. On an aggregated basis, we have one series of conclusions. When you break things down to knowledge workers versus non-knowledge workers, to high-end professionals versus other people in the organization, there are very, very different outcomes and very different productivity curves. There are some industries, there are some job functions that, yeah, you have to be in the office for the majority of the time. There are other job functions where you never need to be there whatsoever. And there are others that there is no office. Like So it's, it's very important when thinking about the world of work to not fall into the trap of, oh, well, at my company X, well, your company is an N of one, and there <laughs> are millions of companies. And so it, it's, it's, it is very, very important when thinking about the future of work to appreciate the complexity that goes into a labor force the size of any industrialized country
0: i have a lot of anecdotes jeff and i have a very big gut and we're going to lean heavily on that in our conversation bring it on. today okay you got it bring it on all right um no just kidding we will go with data and so uh speaking of data i think the number was something like um for gig economy workers it was something like three percent or four percent of the economy today is engaged in gig economy work mm-hmm. um and so gig economy
1: yeah, we, just For your listeners, gig economy being a subset of the on-demand economy writ large. Oh,
0: I use them as synonyms.
1: Oh, yes. This is another issue in the labor markets is that we have lexiconal issues. The on-demand labor market, as I define it in the book, is any work that's getting done by somebody that's not your employee. So that could be a temp Mm -hmm. worker. It doesn't include vendors and outsource. You know, it's not like Foxconn's employees being considered employees of, of Apple. Okay. But temp employees, contractors, consultants, freelancers, gig in, to me is a subset of the freelance workforce. So gig right. work specifically, the Ubers of the world, very, very task oriented, very short term tasks. A freelancer might be a freelancer for years for a company. And they would not be, they were not considered themselves, nor would they be considered a gig worker, but they are an on-demand worker because freelance, consultant, contingent labor, temp, all of those roll together to be the on-demand workforce. And by far, the largest part of the on-demand workforce are temps.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And I will remember that. It won't be hard because I already came up with a way to remember, which is a gig when you're like a musician and you're like, I've got a gig tonight. You never have a gig for two years. (laughs) <laughs> you get you get like a gig tonight. unless
1: you're billy joel playing at uh, madison square garden but yes
0: right all right okay yeah. in residency
1: well, a gig residency
0: um well i'm gonna remember it that way. anyway <laughs> uh fair enough thinking about the local bar and like you're like i got finally got a gig tonight there you go um but yes yeah, so the on-demand economy is still a very small number um it's still just a few percent of the entire economy
1: well, um, the on-demand labor force in total is about twenty-five to thirty percent of the labor I see, force,
0: and this was right, 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 right.
1: Well, and that has been true for some time,
0: and it's been growing by a few percent every time. It has
1: increased. It has taken about three percent market share over the last ten years. It's gone from between twenty-five and twenty-seven to twenty-eight to
0: thirty. Nice. Okay, so with those data in hand, I can make my next point, which is that some of that growth presumably, is attributable to data science models like matching models that we have in apps like Uber and Lyft and TaskRabbit and the food delivery apps. Um, So that's kind of a cool thing related to the data science world. Um, In the the future, (laughs) so maybe uh, talk about the near future first, which is probably easier to extrapolate into, how do we anticipate How do you anticipate, or how did you uh, describe in your book, how data, models, automation will impact not only on-demand workers, but all kinds of workers uh, in the years to come?
1: So the data models and the algorithms that are driven by those data models help to make a reality, something we call total talent management. Total talent management is the, I would say concept, but it is actually in practice in a number of places. The practice of having all of your labor resources in one system so that you can see across anybody that can do an item of work for you a full time employee, a part time employee, a temp worker, a freelancer, a vendor, a robot, an AI system, anything that can accomplish a task is in one system. And the task sits at the top, it goes through the algorithm driven by the data of what each of those individual labor resources can do. And then the algorithm allocates the work to the most efficient piece of that labor resource plane that is available, that has the right skills, that fits in from a regulatory standpoint. Because just because, you know, freelancer X, it would actually be the best resource to do it, you may not be able to engage freelancer X in the state of Wisconsin or in Portugal. So there are a host of regulatory concerns that drive the algorithm. So, understanding the data model of the regulatory environment is hyper important to driving efficiency on labor allocation. But total talent management, all of your labor resources in one place—that was why ADP bought Work Market to tie ADP's to tie Work Market, I should say, into ADP's human capital management software packages.
0: Beautiful. That was a crystal clear answer, and I love that term. Total talent management, it is not one that I knew before, but I will be using a lot uh, in the years to come. And so then looking into the more distant future, so we have uh, the the study that is always cited is Frey and Osborne, um, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure you're aware of. Uh, And Michael Osborne was actually a, uh, he provided one of the, um, uh, what's it called at the beginning of the book, like the recommendation of the book?
1: Oh, um, yeah, the, uh, the pre-roll, the advanced praise. The advanced
0: praise, and you have a lot of them in the end
1: of the I Jack's. do. Did you read uh, any of them? Because there's one in there that's uh, very, very specific that's very good. Um, I'm going to hold, well, hold it up to the screen. Did, uh, is it your mom? It's my mom, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Phyllis Wald says of um, her son's book, this is the best book ever written on any subject.
1: And, and the best she's read part of a lot of books. So she actually has read a lot of books. Yeah. And the best part about that was that when she received her first copy of the book, she called me up and she wrote, Well, Jeffrey, I didn't say that. He's like, Yeah, I know. You're very unimpressed with everything I do. I get it.
0: That's very funny.
1: I get it. I'll keep trying harder, Ma. No problem.
0: Uh well, so Michael Osborne very kindly provided advance praise um, uh, for my book Deep Learning Illustrated. Um, but awesome. Frey and Osborne, um, uh, Benedict Frey and Michael Osborne, uh, have a. a Any time you come across a news item that says this industry is going to be gutted by this year by this amount, I've. I mean, I haven't done the kind of research that you've done for the book that you've done. But when I go and dig into where that number came from, it always comes from this Fray and Osborne paper. Um, and so this Frey and Osborne paper says things like, um, truck driving. In you know, 10 years, nobody's gonna have that job. Uh, whereas physiotherapy is a job that you, you should really get into now because there's gonna be tons of physiotherapists in 10 to 20 years. So, um, you know, So that's kind of my perspective of where the long-term future of work is going from. Me, like everyone else, as um, a perspective that has been created by Fran Osborne and various mm-hmm. the antidote, antidotes and gut feelings that we have um, from our own personal life experiences. So maybe you can use some data um, to forecast for us better. I actually, the second half of your book mm-hmm. is um, detailed predictions from a number of market leaders um, around how work might be in the year 2040. So, I realize we could probably talk about this topic for days. Um, Until
1: 2040. <laughs> I, will say, I will say this. You know, the, the studies that are done, um, I, I, when you actually read them, I, I think the conclusions are very different than the headlines. Headlines are Oxford University predicts 47% of jobs will go. McKinsey predicts 50% of jobs are going to go. And that's not the predictions that any of these people doing a deep dive are doing. Uh, the predictions are susceptibility to automation. And when we look historically, what you see are any task, or I should say this differently, any job function where its component tasks include a high proportion of repetitive high-volume tasks, that job gets automated away. That just happens. No question. Mm -hmm. Now, the question becomes, when you look at and I believe they looked at 704 different job categorizations. When you look at those 704 different job categorizations, you can break the component tasks of that job down into repetitive high volume and not repetitive high volume. Things that are not repetitive high volume, things that involve a lot of customer interaction, things that involve a lot of empathy, design, creativity, those don't get automated. Thing jobs that have 100% of their tasks that are repetitive, high volume tasks, the same thing over and over again. Think about the assembly line and the guy turning the screw. Well, eventually the guy turning the screw got replaced with a robot just doing the screw. Yeah, that, that was going to happen. That is always going to happen. And the issue I have. I guess two issues. One is that in our social media driven world, the headline makes a way around the world like, oh my God, these venerable institutions and venerable people predict all jobs are going to, half the jobs are going to go, we're all screwed. That's problem number one, that's not their fault. Problem number two is just because a job is susceptible to being replaced by automation, it doesn't mean that it's going to be in the near term. And we can dive into the anecdote of truck drivers, which I've been doing a lot of thinking about recently. Because are truck drivers at some point in human history going to be automated? 100%. That is going to happen. Are all of them? No. We never see every single job go. You know, We still have people that are blacksmiths. They're artisans, but we have blacksmiths. We still have candlemakers. I like that. The artisan truck driver. Yeah, look, there will still be those edge cases and specific reasons that you want to keep some around, especially in the medium term. In the long term, maybe I can get my mind around, no, no one will ever do that again but here's the reality the simple logic is oh autonomous vehicles are coming therefore truck drivers are going to go there are 3 million professional truck drivers in the united states and that is just light semis and semis like the class 6 and the class 8s like the big rigs and you know smaller uh, trucks not delivery trucks not uber drivers or taxi drivers not bus drivers those are all different there are 3 million light and heavy truckers. Just because autonomous vehicles are coming, it doesn't mean that they're coming now. Autonomous vehicles have been 90% road ready for the last seven years. We've made almost no progress on that last 10%. That last 10% is incredibly hard because as your audience knows, those are all made up of edge cases. And the edge cases here are huge and have huge implications about life and death. This isn't the edge case of, well, what if somebody goes to that part of the site and it doesn't, the button doesn't work? Nobody gives a shit about that. These are serious edge cases. So I would argue that there is a case to be made that autonomous vehicles will never be road ready. We never get to the point of making them road ready. Now, I think that that's a very low probability, but it's not an impossibility. It has to be considered as a probable outcome. But I, the best case that I hear from people at Waymo and uh, at Tesla and at various other places doing autonomous vehicles is our best case is five years from now. Best case for the car to be road ready. Yeah. Okay.
0: At people who are at companies where people are incentivized to be optimistic.
1: Yeah. Best case five years. So, all right, let's give them that. Let's give them the five years, which I don't think. Once the vehicle is road ready, the road itself has to be ready. You're not just unleashing these things. You need censoring technology all over the place. You need repair infrastructure. What happens when a tire blows? Who's repairing that tire? There needs to be a place for that autonomy. It can't just pull into its local station and be like, beep, beep, repair me. There need to be specific repair infrastructure. And then the regulatory framework. What happens when that truck hits somebody? What happens when the delivery is late? Who's responsible? What happens if it gets hijacked? Like, There are so many things that need to be put in place from a regulatory standpoint. And as difficult as it was to get the car road ready, getting the road ready, I'll give you my best case on that is 10 years. But let's say that happens. Let's say that happens. Now, we have to buy the trucks. Knight Swift is the largest trucking company in the United States. It has 18,000 tractor-trailers. It has a CapEx of $500 million a year, most of which is not dedicated to truck replacement. But let's Mm -hmm. say half of it was. And let's say the average truck costs $150,000, both of which I think are ridiculous assumptions. I think the truck itself is much more expensive, and I think they spend much less on truck replacement. But even in that scenario, it takes them 10 years to replace their entire fleet. So now we're about 25 years out. And so when you start to put those together and you start to realize those are best cases, the reality is that there is not a reasonable case in the near term or even really in the medium term that truckers are going to be out of jobs. The reality of truck driving in the United States is that there are a shortage of truck drivers. This is a good middle-class earning job that somebody without a college education can get. And yet we are pushing people away from it because, oh, that job's going to go. And that Mm. is a In my view, inappropriate series of conclusions that have unfortunate consequences for people that could be earning a very good wage. So there's my anecdote and Uh, rush on truckers.
0: No, that was great. I feel enlightened. I uh Yeah. I've been way too gutty on my feelings about the future. I need to yeah. Well, it's one
1: of those things, John, that we learn from history is that people always do this. It happens every single time there's technological innovation. Oh, my gosh, all the jobs are going to go. And then they relate that forward to, oh, my gosh, it's the fall of society. And every time we end up with ever more jobs, higher standard of living, working fewer few hours. That is not to gloss over, by the way, another important lesson from history, which is that those transitions are tough. And they're tough because jobs do really? go. When we look at those 704 different job classifications. And we do the math as to 50% to 75% lose about half their jobs, 75% to 100%. If the, the I'm talking about the component tasks being repetitive high volume tasks again. Yeah. If 50 to 75% of repetitive high volume tasks, about 50% of the jobs go. If 75 to 100% of the tasks are repetitive high volume tasks, about 100% of those jobs go. We do the math on those 704 job classifications, 10 to 15% of jobs in industrialized economies are going to go. Now, More jobs will be created, I'd say about the same, about 10 to 15% will be created, so we will have no net job losses, but you need to move, in the United States, 25 million workers from one job, one industry, one function, one geography to another, and we do not do that well. History's lessons here are very clear. Mm. We do not look after those workers, we don't provide the retraining necessary, and we do that to our peril.
0: Yeah, I couldn't uh, agree more on that front. Uh, even my gut was in agreement, and um, yeah, and and that one. Even if you just think about how much, even if we had all of the infrastructure in place that would allow people to retrain well, there's a there's a mindset in humans. I think we we are creatures of habit, like any other animal. And you kind of, if coal mining has been the thing that you've been doing, and your parents did, and you live in a coal town. It's hard, to, it's hard to see that things are changing. And, oh, I need to take a computing class on the weekends.
1: Yeah, uh, You're 100% right. Look, we went from 1 million coal workers in the United States in the 1950s down to about 200,000 as we get into the 80s, down to about 80,000 now. And it's got nothing to do with environmental policy. It's got nothing to do with trade policy. Machines rip coal from the ground. So mm-hmm. what do people in those communities do? The, and it's at this recording, it's January 18th, so the president for two more days, uh, you know, I'm going to save coal jobs. It was not a possibility to right. save coal jobs. And what we should be talking about is not saving the coal job, but helping the coal miner to get to a job in industries and segments that are growing, because that person we owe something to. We don't owe something to the coal on the ground and getting it out. We don't owe anything to that. We owe something to those people and to those communities to help them. For sure. What
0: a beautiful way to end talking about the end of jobs. I just have one last question for you. Well, I have two last questions for you, but you'll see why the last question isn't really much of a question at all. So my penultimate question for you is, uh, do you have any book recommendations? I mean, maybe even related to The End of jobs, but it could be anything.
1: Well, the first thing that come to, comes to mind is, you know, if you're going to read one thing about the future of work, well, actually, if you're going to read one thing, you should read my book. <laughs> <Okay. Yeah. laughs> if I'm <you're laughs> going to make a book recommendation, what am I doing here? I would recommend my own book. That's what you should read. Yes. So, okay. But if you're going to read two things about right. the future of work... <laughs> Sorry, that was, I didn't, I should have thought that one through. Can you read two things about the future work? I would say the World Economic Forum's report that they put out almost two years ago now, but I still think it is brilliant. It is thoughtful. Uh, Their analysis on the near term, the next five years, and what's going to happen industry by industry, geography by geography, job function by job function is incredibly thoughtful and is based not on. Um, study in a classroom, but it's by uh, having conversations with the C-suites at companies all over the planet. And I think it is the best thing one can read on the future of work. And I drew very heavily from it and very close contact with the team at the World Economic Forum and think they are thinking about this issue more intelligently than most.
0: Beautiful. We'll try to link it to that in the show notes. Do you remember the, the title of it or is just World Economic Forum? Like World
1: Economic Forum's Fourth Industrial Revolution, Future of Work.
0: Nice. That'll make it very easy for us to find it and link to it. Thank you. All right, Jeff. And then the last question is how can people stay in touch with you? Should they follow you on Twitter, follow you on LinkedIn? Uh, how well, can we hear more great data and insights about how things have been and how things are going to be?
1: If you want uh, some tweets about uh, economist articles and various studies and companies that are helping to shape the future of work, Twitter is the one place that I go by Jeffrey. I actually could not get Jeff Wald, um, <laughs> but uh, LinkedIn is where I spend most of my time. And Certainly, uh, anyone can can reach out on, on either platform. And I'm always happy to talk about the future of work and how we can use the history of work, data in the world of work, and how companies actually engage workers to get a better sense and a more thoughtful series of predictions about the future of work.
0: Beautiful. It's so interesting. In the data science community, LinkedIn is definitely the social medium of choice. Um, Guests on the program always say, you know, I do use Twitter or in some cases they say I don't use Twitter at all, but everyone has a LinkedIn profile and recommends that either way they get in touch. I thought that maybe you'd be different, but no, (laughs) perfect.
1: No, No Instagram, no Snapchat, none of that. Just... (laughs) Too much Uh, much to do in the real world. All right,
0: I'll just cross off the next question about your TikTok (laughs) handle. Um, Great, all right. Thank you so much, Jeff, for being on the program. I learned a ton. I am 100% confident that our audience members did too.
1: This was so much fun. Thank you so much for having me and I look forward to staying in touch.
0: Holy moly, did I ever learn a lot in that episode. I have a feeling you did too. Jeff has so, so, so many well-informed statistics and arguments under his belt based on historical and contemporary data, and then he communicates his points flawlessly. We covered how we currently enjoy more jobs, more free time, and a higher quality of life than ever before. Trends in remote work, on-demand work, and the fluidity of employers. How repetitive high-volume work will continue to disappear, as it always has over the past centuries. And we discussed how, like previous industrial revolutions before now, the current revolution, driven by data science and automation, is likely to result in more net jobs, not fewer. Although, on the way, there's likely to be some social upheaval. Plenty of food for thought. You can get way more detail from Jeff Wald's newly released book, The End of Jobs. As always, you can get all of the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, and URLs to Jeff's LinkedIn and Twitter profiles, as well as my own LinkedIn and Twitter profiles at superdatascience.com slash 443. That's superdatascience.com slash 443. When you add us on LinkedIn, it might be a good idea to mention you were listening to this Super Data Science podcast episode so that we know you're not a random salesperson. If you enjoyed this episode, kindly leave a review on your favorite podcasting app or on YouTube where you can enjoy a high fidelity video version of today's program. It sure is nice to be able to put smiling faces to all the laughs we had today. I also encourage you to tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Twitter to let me know your thoughts on this episode. I'd love to respond to your thoughts in public and get a conversation going. All right, it's been so great. Thank you for listening. Looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science Podcast with you very soon.